0: I Probably 99.9% of every Bible study I have ever done at Calvary Chapel, Lynchburg, or probably anywhere else for that matter, has been a a passage study where I'm going through a passage, I'm going through a book, and um, um, sometimes we'll do that, we'll do series, but even when we do series and we're not like in a particular book, um, still it's going to be based upon a a passage of scripture and we'll um, go through it. Tonight is not that. Tonight is a, um, it's a message that's going to address a specific issue, and the title of the study is The Danger of Critical Theory to the Christian Faith. And it is something that is all around, and I hope what can happen tonight is that we can address this issue. We can speak of it. Our eyes could maybe be opened up to see what's going on. Let me tell you what this is not. This is not an appeal to save the Republic of America. So if that's what you're hoping for, you're going to be sorely disappointed. This is about the church of Jesus Christ and how there there is a truth that has once for all been delivered to us and that we must earnestly contend for it. Now, we're going to look at this in the narrow sense of how it impacts the church, but it's impacting society. I mean, critical race theory is something I'm sure everyone in here has probably heard. But we're going to talk about critical theory, which is a larger umbrella um, under which you would find you would find critical race theory as well. But the first passage I want to read as we come to this is in Colossians chapter 2 verses eight through 10. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. Church of Colossae, um, Paul wrote to them, they had a threat. There was people that were coming in, they were questioning um, who Christ really was. And I I would argue that this is an early form of a false teaching called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word uh, gnosis, which is where we get our word knowledge. And so in this fully developed form, Gnosticism would say something like this, there is this understanding, this special understanding that a select group of people have. Do you have it? And you would say, well, what is it? And it's like, never mind, you don't have it. Well, tell me what it is. I'm sorry. If it hasn't been revealed to you, I can't share it with you. Some of us have it, some of us don't. And you know, that concept of some people being in the in, in the, on the in and some people being on the out has made its way through the centuries of the church. And it manifests itself in many different forms. But I tell you, I really believe that um, uh, contemporary critical theory is, is one of those things that claims to have a secret knowledge. And hopefully I'll develop that well enough that you can, you can make that identification. But it really doesn't matter what the ism is, there are all kinds of philosophies that seek to pull people away from their full experience with Christ. The problem at the heart of what um, Paul was addressing was there was some, or at least some were saying, that Jesus is not enough. You have to get more. You have to receive more. I'll give you one more thought about Gnosticism here. And uh, when we read that, you know, uh, Jesus is the fullness of uh, deity, uh, or, or sorry, verse 9, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the Gnostics had this, um, I don't know what you call it. I mean, they called it the pleroma, which is where we get the word complete or full from. But they, they had this, this, this set of emanations that came from God. And each one of these was an aspect of God. Some of them were good, some of them were bad. The God of the Old Testament, they said, was an evil God. That's probably tied into the fact because they believed that the material world was bad. And so whoever would have created the material world had to be evil himself. Not true, of course, but this is what they had. And they they had, I I can't even go through the names of them, but they, they had all these different emanations that came down. Jesus was one of those that came to reveal God to mankind. So clearly a, a heretical view. Um, but that whole um, series of emanations was called the pleroma, or the fullness. And so when you read here, for in him dwells the pleroma, it's, it's the idea, it's like, listen, Jesus isn't just one little slice of, of God being revealed. He is the whole thing. And so you can see how Paul's just he's overstating it, and not really overstating, it, but trying to state it in such a way that they would, they would see that Jesus is all that they need, and they need to be careful of philosophy and empty deceits that come along and say, you need something more than him. You need something more than Jesus. So there are threats that come to the church at all times. As I talk about this, I in no way am suggesting this is the only threat that the church is facing. I mean there's all kinds of ideas and threats that exist out there at any given time. However, this is a dominant one. And this is one that I think is hard, it's kind of it's hard to get your hands on. It, it's, it's one to address because when, as it begins to be spoken and, and, and talked of, there are moral aspects of what we think they are saying that immediately run to, like injustice. <laughs> well, We're not for injustice. We want there to be justice, oppression. We don't want people to be oppressed. We want people to be liberated and loved. So we're immediately drawn in to this not fully understanding where they're going with their understanding. So again, hopefully I'll be able to develop that out. One thing that is certainly we would have in common, I even hate to say it this way, but I'm going to say it this way, with the Gnostics, uh, with those that would appeal to any other even, you know, contemporary critical theory, um, you, you throw your ism in there, is that we all would agree that mankind is marred and we're looking for a way to make it right. And of course, mankind left to his own comes up with you know, insufficient answers and are led astray. but. We know that creation is marred. We, we, won't, we won't argue that things are broken in this world and people's lives get hurt and they're trampled and people do evil thing, things. We know that creation is marred. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're broken. We don't argue that point. But how we seek to, to find man made whole is, is where the difference is and it is a huge one. The beauty of God's image in man has been marred through the fall, but it's being recovered through the work of Christ. And we're going to talk more about this at the end of our study. But sin has separated man from fellowship with God, and there is a reason for our brokenness. And, and if you don't start there, you're not going to end in the right place. So let's try and, and define some terms. Um, Critical or contemporary critical theory. Um, In its earliest form, um, in a school in Frankfurt, they were trying to examine how they could move along a Marxist ideology and how could they get power to transfer from one set of society into another portion of society. But this theory doesn't work just to promote and shift economics and, and, um, and, and power politically, but it also is looking at how to move oppressive cultural ideas and even traditional values. So how do you take that which this group has experienced as a difficulty, as an oppression by this group, and how do you reverse the order of that? This is critical, contemporary critical theory. So the theory promote, works to promote freedom and shift power um, from oppressive cultural ideas and traditional values to, and I must say, the perceived per, uh, oppressive cultural ideas. Because sometimes what they're calling oppression, we, we just we would be out. Because you, every one of you in here who believes the Bible, would fall into an oppressive group according to this theory. You maybe have never thought of yourself as an oppressor, but if you believe in the Christian faith, you are according to them. So it's not that they always have a right understanding of this. I I would recommend that you find this, and it's a free download. Um, I think you can go to Shinvi Shinvi Apologetics, I think. If you type that in, you'll find it, S-H-E-N-V-I. And um, he has a free download and uh, it's a short article. It's a weighty article. But it's um, a booklet, and it's called um, Critical Theory and the Social Justice Movement. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from this quite a bit here tonight. So here's the first quote. From the perspective of contemporary critical theory, our experience of reality, our evaluation of evidence, our access to truth... Our moral status and our moral obligations are all largely determined by membership in either a dominant oppressor group or a subordinate oppressed. So truth is coming from an interesting place here, isn't it? Where we find morality is coming not from the word of God. It's coming from that subgroup that we are a part of, that that demographic that we would find Ourselves in. So CCT, or Contemporary Critical Theory, is about liberating the oppressed and marginalizing the oppressor, which doesn't sound bad on its surface. But as you dig deeper in, and I'll point out some areas where we certainly would say this is wrong and that is oppression and it should be resoundingly denounced. And we'll talk about some of that in just a moment. But for them, that, that idea of, of who the oppressor group, man, that is, that is a dangerous piece that is a threat to Christianity because it sees Christianity as that. And so the work of liberating oppressed groups is, is the work of social justice, right? That's what happens. Another term that's closely related with um, critical theory and it would be a, a kind of a subset underneath it again, is the, the word intersectionality. How many of you ever have heard the word intersectionality before? So, intersectionality is if critical theory is looking at how an oppressed group um, can throw off the shackles of the oppressors and they can begin to redefine and they can now have the power and they can control what's going on so that they can have their salvation. Well, intersectionality is the idea of of many subgroups or many different demographics being grouped together. So, again, the definition, I think, is right up there in front of you. Intersectionality is a term used to reference the interconnectedness of class, gender, race, age that combine. So the idea is the combining of these different groups to form systems of discrimination and oppression. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. A white woman is oppressed because of her gender. She's a woman. And men have oppressed, they will say. Um, And certainly there are are lots of truth to what they're saying at at the initial observation level, um, have been, um, you know, suffered at the hands of men. So she she can say that this is the subgroup that I'm a part of. I am a woman. Now, if you're a white male, you get no boxes to check. You're just the flat-out oppressor. But if you're a white woman, you get no credit for being white, but you do get credit for being a woman. If you're a black man, um, you are able to check the box of minority, but you can't check the box of gender. As a minority, you have been oppressed, but as a man, you have been an oppressor towards women. So you only get one point. A black lesbian woman is oppressed because she's a minority, because of her gender, and because of her sexual preference. Now, that, that's intersectionality. So they're trying to put together all these different um, subgroups of people that are oppressed. And the more boxes you check, the more credit, the more clout you receive. What is that credit and what does that clout give you? The right to speak. It gives you the right to talk about issues. You get to control, buzzword, the narrative. You are the one that gets to be able to say, this is the way it is. Now, if somebody who only has one box checked and you've got three, you can, you can cancel them. You can silence them. You can de-platform them because you have more um, oppression. Therefore, you have a clear view of reality. Can you begin to see why this would be so dangerous to the Christian faith? Because where does truth reside? Truth resides within a person according to their narrative, according to their life experience. So that's, that's the idea of intersectionality. But it's really just, it's, again, it's part of the critical theory of, of how one group um, that's oppressed can move to the place of not being oppressed and stop that evil that's going on. And if you have many oppressive uh, boxes you can check, then you have more voice. You um, are able to speak more clearly about these issues. Being able to control the narrative. Again, another quote um, uh, from uh, Shinvi and Sawyer who wrote this article. They write, Oppressed people, therefore, have an advantage over oppressors when it comes to understanding reality. They are better able to read the world. Their lived experience of oppression gives them special access to truths. Does it sound familiar to the opening? Colossians 2, 8 through 10. Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And so they, they, they are, they, you end up being in a group that has special access to truth that are generally concealed from dominant groups, giving them unique authority and insight to lead in the liberation of both themselves and their oppressors. It is only the oppressed who, by freeing themselves, can free their oppressors. And so this is how this system is working I may be jumping ahead of myself but I'm going to in, in, inject it right here. This is something that I think is so dangerously inviting to young people. Because if you are a person, and you know, can, you know is, are they defining it this way in college and high, and high school on the street level? Probably not, but they, but they have the feel and they have the essence of this philosophy. And they know that you have to be in one of these oppressed groups to really be able to speak. And listen, if you sign up for an oppressed group, if you decide that your gender is not the way you were born, you now get to check a box. And if you now claim, it's like, hey, I, I, you know, I have same-sex attraction, now you get to check a box. And what that means is now you can be celebrated. You can get clout. You can have a voice to speak whereas you didn't have before. And we see the way the world applauds that and affirms that. And to a young person trying to find out who they are, something we all went through, right, as teens, trying to figure out who they are and to know that they can just begin to do this or they can do that, now suddenly they're going to have a voice to speak. They're going to be accepted. It becomes terribly inviting to them. And don't we see that happening in such a rapid way? After all, who wants to be a part of it an oppressor group? Who wants to be in that category? Nobody. So you look to get out of it. And listen, I'm not saying this is the only issue that those that maybe have same-sex attraction or they're having this, you know, this, this trouble with what gender they are, I am not for a moment saying that is the only thing that contributes to it. I'm just saying this is one of the major ways in which it's working its way in. Discovering your true identity will finally allow you to confront your oppressors, change the way society is controlled, and now we have salvation. That's their religion. That's their religion. Now, I want to back up because the the part that I said at at the... Part of this is like, well, wait a minute. We are against oppressors. (laughs) We're not for people that oppress. I don't want to be an oppressor. And that is absolutely right. And I think that's where we get hooked and we start to get pulled into this. So let me just stop for a moment and speak about the deep concern for injustice that we as believers should have. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the speechless and the cause of all who are appointed to die open your mouth judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and needy this is quite a commandment isn't it because you know we're being called and commanded here to open our mouth and to speak in a moment of injustice Where somebody with authority and power has made an unrighteous decision and that person is going to have some harm to them. And the commandment of the Lord is you step into that situation and you speak up. Don't be quiet. Open your mouth. If you have to deal with trouble, deal with trouble. But the Lord is so for those who are genuinely oppressed through evil that he commands us, his followers, to open our mouth and to speak. I'm sure I'm not the only one that is here and tries to place yourself in certain historical, pivotal moments of history. How about, you know, when uh, the African slave trade was going on in this country? What have you spoke up? Could have we said something? Could have we seen that kind of oppression? Could we see those that weren't being judged righteously? And would have we pled the the cause of the poor and needy? Um, of course, in England, there was a man by the name of William Wilberforce who hit it out of the park. And it was a moment in history, and God used this guy in an amazing way to fight for the abolition of, sage, uh, of slavery. But not only that, but also for good manners and for the, the, the right treatment of animals that were being brutalized. He stood up, and the Lord used him and others like him and they changed the way society thought they opened their mouth and there was there was danger something they laid on the line the potential for loss but what would have you done had you been Will, william wilberforce would have you laid everything on the line would have you for you know potentially been willing to forsake your entire fortune and all the power you had politically and socially he did you know, you can think about other situations like during the Holocaust. Would have you hid the Jews? What have you allowed them to hide in your house? Could have you, would have you been like um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer that was willing to stand up and do everything he can to free them and even stop the government? Of course, I mean, he went to some other levels that I have not fully worked through in my own mind, but he was part of conspiracies to kill Hitler but it, because it was because of the oppression. So you can work that one out over a nice long conversation at your own dinner table. But but you get my point. We are to speak up. So when, we, when I say that there's a danger of contemporary critical theory, and we begin to define it, this in no way is to say that we turn a blind eye to genuine, real, evil oppression. On the contrary, We are to be the first ones to speak up and open our mouth, even if it means harm to us. Contemplate it. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. The church should open her mouth. Now, the problem is this. Church history, that's the problem. You know, if you read church history, you're going to have a few moments where you are so proud of those that went before you. And I just named a couple of them. But you also, as you read church history, you're going to go like, are you kidding me? They did what? They said what? You know, this is the reality. If the church in America would have stood up and the pastors and the Christians would have spoke out against the slave trade, which the New Testament forbids, by the way. The New Testament forbids kidnapping and selling somebody. If the church would have taken that one truth of scripture. And there's a lot of others they could have clung on to. But if they would have taken that one and they would have said, it absolutely is not going to happen. And here at this church, if you come in and you do this, we're going to call you out. We're going to call you to repentance. And if you're unwilling to repent of it, then we're going to remove you from the church. If the church in America would have done that, slavery would have come to an end much quicker or the church would have been persecuted like crazy. Maybe a little bit of both. So you can look at these moments, it's like, why didn't the church speak up? And so people begin to think, well, the church is for slavery. No, not the true church of Jesus Christ who's built upon the foundation and the truth of the revealed word of God. And so we can find these dark moments of exploitation, the way people were treated, people from different countries, even, you know, women were treated you can find some dark moments in church history, but that does not then, I question, is that the real church? I mean, you know, when they're doing these, um, some of these evil things. So that is something that we have to contend with. And I think when we begin to talk with people about this, they need to know that although we may reject where they finally go, and we're going to dive into that in just a little bit more, but the real trouble with this philosophy is... Um, we need to understand that they're looking at a lot of these things and saying, yeah, but what about this oppression? What about the exploitation of, you know, of, of young children in the sex trade? <laughs> we're, yeah, we're against that. And we, we speak out against those things. So it's not that we're saying we don't want to help oppressed people or that certain times in history that the church failed miserably to step up and do her job. We should feel freedom to acknowledge that sin and failure because the Lord has no problem with doing that. So that is something that I think we just need to keep in mind, that although we have a problem with contemporary critical theory, we don't have a problem with speaking out against social injustice. So in Shinvi and Sawyer's critique of CCT or contemporary Christian uh, contemporary critical theory, They're, they have four points that they bring out, and I want to just bring them to you. Number one is there's a big difference on the source of truth. And that, I think, is the, f- I mean, if that's the only point, that is enough right there. But critical theory is going to find its source of truth, do you remember where? In the oppressed person. In the most oppressed person. They're the ones that get the right to speak they're the ones that have the, the, the you know the most clout to say something, and if you don't like it, then we'll cancel you. We'll deplatform you, we'll take your voice away. You have no right to speak, they will say. So they become the source of the truth. But this becomes, this becomes not objective truth, this becomes very subjective. This now is residing with a group of those people or even with an individual. But for us, where does truth come from? It comes from the scriptures. We look to the scripture to find out who God is, who we are, where we fail, what God requires of us as we, we see people in hurt and see people in need. How do we share the gospel? What are we to do with our time, our energy, our money, our talents? And so we allow the word of God to speak on matters of, of uh, sexuality, on matters of finances, on matters... Of life. And so there's a big differing source. It's an individual, and so often that is something that is built upon the hurts that they've gone through. And so if you're in the conversation, yeah, but I've gone through these hurts, you, now you're, you're kind of rocked back on your heels because you feel like you're now attacking this person. And, the, and it's cleverly put together like that. But we differ on the source of truth. Secondly, we differ on where we find our identity. Where mankind finds their identity. We derive our understanding and get our identity from being created, what? In the image of God. The value of a human being is that they have been created in the image of God. But for those that to this philosophy that we're talking about, they're going to find their value and their identity in the demographic group that they're a part of. Which means that when we know this from the Word of God, they're never going to find salvation. They're never going to be reconnected with their Creator. Because they're not looking... As the, at themselves as one that's been created in his image has fallen and can be restored back fully to this relationship with him so we differ on the source of truth we differ on where we find our identity and we're going to talk more about that here in just a moment but we also differ about a sovereign god you know we sang a song and we were worshiping and we are celebrating the dominion and power of god how many times have we prayed and say, oh, Lord, but you are sovereign in all things, and we just kind of feel, ah, you're in control. I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't understand it. But, Lord, you're in control. You have all dominion and power. And we gladly relinquish that, and we give that up to the Lord and praise and worship. We follow, and much of what I'm going to say is taken from this article, we follow a singular narrative about God. Humankind and about redemption. We hold to a single standard of morality. We have beliefs about gender, sexuality, and marriage. We believe and worship a sovereign God who rules over all and has given us all that information I just mentioned. You are sovereign God. You have the right to speak. But critical theory sees God as the ultimate oppressor. So, I mean, what we hear so often is that you know it's the it's the white male the white evangelical male especially is the one that's the real problem and they have no right to speak they have no right to address or talk about any of the issues that are going on and you can hear this being spoken all over and although I might have a reaction to that as one who fits in that category that is not what the message is about The message is, so then where did I get my understanding? Where did I get my worldview? Well, I got it from from Scripture. I personally got it from Scripture, from the Word of God. So not only is it now that subgroup or whatever group it is, but it's that subgroup that appeals to the word of God, the church of Jesus Christ, and you can look down through her history and you can see the places where she either failed to speak up against oppression or she actively, sinfully, in rebellion against God, engaged in oppression. So now not only should that group be canceled and silenced, but where did they get their information from? Who's the one that's, that's moving upon them? Oh, well, it's the Bible. It's God who is sovereign. Oh, sovereign. He, that's the dominant one. He's the ultimate oppressor. And so they look at a sovereign God as their arch enemy. We look at a sovereign God and we say, thank you, Lord. And so you can begin to see how this is you know, such an oppression. Now listen, are all of these ideas going to be fully developed among somebody that you would sit and talk through with this? No, but the enemy is at work because the philosophy is bearing it out. You've, I imagine you've probably talked to some people that are, that are walking down this road. So Christianity, the mission work of the church, you know, I mean, missionaries are seen as like the tip of the spear of, of the oppression, wanting to go and change somebody's religion or calling them to repentance. And so they... They have strong feelings against it. So they argue that the church was oppressive. And the Bible's teaching about submission to God is oppressive. So therefore, when you read about God saying that a man should be in authority over his house and that a woman should be in submission to his wife, well, boy, all the bells, all the whistles go off, don't, don't they? Because this is, this is now that you know, God himself is the one that gave man that power over woman. But if we don't fully understand what the Bible teaches about that, then you can be really led astray. Because what man, the husband, is called to do is to love his wife like Christ loves the church. To give himself, to serve her, to take care of her emotionally and physically and spiritually as Jesus did. And so now we can clearly see that that is not a threat. But that's not it's not getting to that level. And so the same God wants to tell me who I am in my gender, and the same God wants to tell me, you know, you know what marriage should look like. The same God wants to tell me what to do with my body and sex. Can you see how they begin to reject if they have adopted this philosophy? How they begin to reject and push all of these other ideas away? It's not the only thing that's at work, but it is one of the major ways. I, the, the last point here is that they differ on how we view evil. For them, evil is found in a group of people. Irrespective of an individual that's part of that group. Listen to this. Evil is in the group. Irrespective of how that individual in that group thinks, speaks, or acts... Despite what their morality is, it's not an individual. So to to protest and say, yeah, but I don't think... It does not matter. That does not resonate with them because it's the group. This idea of the intersectionality again coming. What is a group that you're a part of? You're part of evangelical church? You're part of Christianity? Ah, okay. You're evil. You're white. You're evil. Whatever it might be. Again, that's a different conversation somewhat of a different conversation than where I want to go, but when we think about the church, so now that is how they look at it. It's not based upon your words. It's not based, based upon your deeds. It's based upon this group and what they have historically done or what they say you have historically done. And if you protest, who gave you the right to speak? You're, you're, you don't have the right. You're part of a group of people of dominant, you have no voice here, you are not allowed to speak, and so this is why we see so many shout downs and people in platforming and canceling because you have no right to speak, which is a big deal for the church of Jesus Christ if she can't speak up about sin. So, we differ on how we view evil. We believe all of mankind has sinned, and all are held responsible for their individual sins. We don't believe that the Son will be responsible for the sins of the Father, right? That each person is going to be held accountable for what they have done with their mouth, with their eyes, with their hands, with their deeds. Were you kind? Were you um, loving? Were you oppressive? But if you're a part of the group, it doesn't matter. That has gone away. It seeks to explain the pain and brokenness of mankind outside of one's rebellion against God. And so how we see you know, evil and what we think about sin, it's, it's radically different. They don't look and say that I am broken and hurting because I have rebelled against God. I am broken and hurting because of, and then they begin to point. Now who's the reason why? Now, Can an an individual or even a group of people bring hurt and pain upon another group of people? We have a really dark history that says, yes, that can happen. But before that happens, man is broken because of his relationship with God. And so we, we, we don't see this. The, the other thing that really begins to happen because of how we view evil is that it begins to pit segments of society against each other without any regard to the actual wrong committed. Let me say that again. It pits segments of society against each other without any regard to the actual wrong that was committed or not committed. That doesn't matter. And so... What we begin to find is when you have this and you're just now it's this group against this group, now you begin to have a society, now you begin to have a nation that's angry. And now we begin to have all kinds of tensions, whereas before maybe we we didn't have. And do do we see this happening in our society? Oh, we absolutely see it. Does the church have a, a you know a, a lower view than she's ever had in, in America? Oh yeah, and this is why. This is kind of what's going on. So this way of viewing evil and identifying what the brokenness is in humanity, humanity, it embitters, it divides, it entitles, and it fails to redeem. It will not make anybody better. We believe that all unrighteousness is wrong and should be condemned no matter what demographic group a person may be in. And that's rejected. That you would look at a demographic group and say, that's wrong and that is a bad act. No, time out. You can't say that because you're this and you're that. And so we should have freedom to do this and we're going to go ahead and we are going to do that. It is a failure when we don't speak up when unrighteousness is happening. And I want to, listen, I've had people get mad at me. I'm I'm sure I'll I'll have some more people get mad at me and all I have to say is get in line. There's a long line of people. But I'm going to speak the truth. It is always right to call out injustice. When somebody's being hurt, when somebody's being mistreated, forget demographics. If a person is being hurt, it is always right for me to open my mouth and say, That is wrong. It's always right for me to pray for them and even pray for them publicly. It's always right for me to to want good to happen to any individual. That there would be a blessing that would be placed upon them. And when I begin to feel like the enemy for wanting to pray for people that are going through difficulties because they're not in the right demographic, then we have a real problem. And I'll just have to say this, and this is my opinion, but I'm just going to say it. I think if we... Those who would want to protest against us standing up and speaking out against some injustice that's going on, some evil that's going on, you don't have a right, this group did this to that group for so long, you have no right to speak about that. That kind of mentality is why you had slavery. Because somebody was unwilling to stand up and speak out. Because if you're willing to speak out, you can stop the evil that's going on. When a group of people speak out, you can stop it. But when people are like, well, now, you know what, they kind of deserve it. Then that's how injustice begins to just roll through society. And whole segments can be caught up. So listen, don't let anybody shout you down for wanting to speak up on the rights of those who are being mistreated. So, yeah, differ greatly. We differ on the source of truth. We differ on how we view our identity I don't view my identity and find my wholeness in the demographic. I find it in the fact that I am created in Christ, fallen, and I come to Christ that I might be restored. I di- we differ about a sovereign God who has a right to tell us how to live and that we think is, a, is a, a blessing and something to even worship. And we differ on how we view evil. So let's just begin to wrap this up here. I want to get into some scripture about some of these differences from our perspective. So we are created in God's image. I've mentioned that a few times. And the Bible is very clear as to who we are, why we are broken, and how has God addressed man's broken state. Because again, as I said in the opening, man is marred. And while we will totally disagree with those that want to go anywhere other than to the cross of Jesus Christ for salvation, we do agree that man is broken. And so people are being deceived. People are being led astray. People are following these isms, thinking that in the end they're going to find a wholeness. And we know the the answer. We know what's going to happen. And so the result is our hearts should be broken. Forget about the personal offense, okay? Just just get over it. Our hearts should be broken that these people are being led astray. And that we would want to speak to them. In Genesis 1.26, we find the statement that so clearly identifies who we are. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, over the creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man is the, creation, the only creation of God that bears his image. We read... Throughout the creation account, and God made such and such after its own what? Kind. But we are made after who? We are made after God. Which takes us and elevates us to this, this, the top of, of God's creative order. It doesn't make us gods, but now we are created after him and like him. It's a hard thing to define because God is rather large. So what does it mean to be made in the image I spent time in about four or five different systematic theology books just going through this idea of the image of God, and this is what they all said. This is almost an undefinable aspect of who we are. But they all agreed about these aspects of it, but not limiting it to this. And this is from Wayne Grudem. He says, Man is like God in the following ways. Intellectual ability, moral purity, spiritual nature, dominion over the earth, Create creativity, ability to make ethical choices, and immortality, but not limiting it to that. And so this is how God made us. He made us to have a connection, um, a deep connection with him emotionally and spiritually. And it's not just that man was made in his image. Genesis 1.27 Says, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Go back 30 years, and you would think, well, that last little phrase is probably not so necessary. Agree with it, believe it, know all it's all supposed to be there. But when you read that phrase today, male and female, he created them, you're like, Lord, thank you for putting that in there. Thank you for putting that in there. And so you have people that are confused about their gender because they are broken and they are far from God and they fail to see that how they've been made biologically, what their gender is, is something that is amazing. It is according to the genius creative process of God. It's not man against woman or woman against man. We are both created in the image of God. Which, by the way, if man would have got that, women would have never been mistreated. Because they would have understood that she is made in the image of God. We'll talk more about that in just just a second. A third passage that refers to the image of God is found in Genesis 9-6. This is after the fall. This is after the flood. So Noah's off the boat. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he created man. So we were in the garden before when I read those passages. Now we're on the other side of the flood, and still God is what? Referring to fallen man as being created in his image. So we're not created in his physical image, but in these other uh, ways that I spoke of, intellectual ability, moral purity, spiritual nature, dominion over the earth, creativity, ability to make ethical choices, and immortality, So we're we're made after his image like that. And while it has been marred and has been broken by sin, it still remains. And God uses the fact that we were created in his image to say, be careful how you treat people. And in this context, it's speaking about murder. He warns against the shedding of blood. But if we were all created in the image of God, we should respect all people which is going to solve a lot of problems. It's going to solve um, the oppression uh, uh, that has happened and still goes on to this day of men dominating women and treating them in an oppressive manner. How you treat somebody of a different race, which I have to tell you, I really hesitate to even say it that way, but I say it that way because that's that's the language we use. But when you read in Genesis, it says we are all have come from one blood. God didn't make four different, five different, six, seven different kinds of bloods and say, okay, you're this race. That, it's a human race. And so I understand the why that word is often used and how it's often understood. So that's case, but we're all one blood, we're one family. We've all descended from the the same set of parents. But if I realize that all people are created in the image of God, then it's going to change how I treat them. I'm going to treat them with the respect that the Lord calls. How children are treated, how children are exploited, and often kidnapped and taken into slave labor or sexual slave trade. That, That doesn't happen. Because you see them as those that are created in the image of the Lord. Certainly not an issue that the contemporary critical uh, theory would be interested in, but we are as the unborn children. You know, you don't take the life of an unborn child when you realize they're created in the image of God. Oh, time out there. They're not born yet. Oh, time out is right. Because in Jeremiah 1:4 through 5, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you, notice the word formed, You in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And that word means in a secular sense of like a potter putting his hands on a piece of clay and forming it. But in a divine sense, it speaks of the creative process of God, of man. Genesis 2-7, back to the original creation. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. What do you think the odds are that the word formed in Jeremiah and the word formed in Genesis are the same Hebrew word? If you say 100%, you would be right. It is the same exact word. So God is forming an a unborn child in the womb, and it's the same word is used. When he created Adam, he said, you've made in his image So to abort a baby is to abort one that has been created and formed by God. And I think there's this idea, it's just a physical process that's just going on its own. No, the Lord, he says in Jeremiah that he's involved in that process of forming that child. So this idea of understanding our identity and therefore understanding everybody else's identity on planet Earth, all other humans, it it has a profound impact on how we move and we go out. You can understand why Satan has fought so hard to dismiss the idea that there is a creator God. And so we see the trouble and the hardship. So I'm just going to give you these quickly, and we're going to wrap it up. How then should we live? Well, if we're created in the image of God, then we should fellowship with God. If you can enjoy, who's a person you enjoy spending time with most on planet Earth? That you laugh the most with, you cry the most with, you connect with the most with, and just kind of like, man, they just, I, it just completes me when I'm with them. Well, that person was created in the image of God. Imagine what happened if you are not interacting with one made in the image of God, but you are interacting with God Himself. What is the possibility for fullness and enjoyment? Psalm 1611 says, you will show me the path of life, for in your presence is fullness of joy. That's what you get. Secondly, we should live with purpose. If I'm created in the image of God, then I should look to see what he wants me to do. And Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship, his work of art. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as a one that's been made by God, I want to fellowship with him. I want to live with the purpose that he has set for my life. He's given me a to-do list as, a, as one that's been born again in him, and I want to walk out those purposes in my life. Thirdly, we walk in unity. Again, we talked about this, but the, the division that this, this uh, contemporary critical theory creates within society but think about the threat that it can make inside the church and how important is unity inside the church. It's one of the last things Jesus prayed for that we would be one that even as he and the father were one that we would be one. Not only that, Ephesians 2:14 through 16 says for Christ has brought peace to us, he united Jews and Gentiles into one people in his own body on the cross. Do you catch that? What did Jesus do on the cross? He unified all peoples together. All peoples. The Jews that specially called nation. And then all the other nations of the world. And he at the cross not only atoned for sins, but he was also at the cross bringing us together so there would be no division. And man, this stuff is dividing the body of Christ. It's dividing families left and right. Number four, we walk in forgiveness. Far from holding grudges against those who have harmed us, we're called to forgive. The one thing about contemporary critical theory is there's no redemption for the oppressor group. That is not Christianity at all. We're told to love our enemies. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. But this theory removes that. You don't have to forgive them because they are evil and they are the oppressor group. But we're called to walk in forgiveness. And I've already talked about it. But lastly, we care for the oppressed. Same verse, Proverbs 31.8 and 9. I just wanted to get it in there one more time. Open your mouth for the speechless. And the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. This is how we live as those who have been created in the image of God. So important for us to walk this out and to live this out. It's important for us to know how people are hearing things. and How people are being caught up. And again, it's, it's at the heart and the part that I think that most people, whether they understand all these ins and outs and nuances, is this like, but my feelings say this. This is how I feel. Which is to say, my narrative is. My story is. And how dare you come and tell me what the Bible has to say about how to live my life. Because I feel like this is the right thing. You're just trying to oppress me. And so now... We can, And you're dealing with this with your children. You're dealing with this maybe with a spouse or maybe with a parent, a friend, even a former pastor possibly. And now you feel like you have no place to speak, but you do. Because all authority has been given to us to go and preach the gospel and to speak the truth. I realize it's kind of a different type of message, but I just, I I hope that... You can, as you hear these buzzwords going on, and you hear on the news and you hear it here and you hear it there, so much of what you're gonna hear is gonna relate to how you know we're acting as a society, and that has we certainly should be concerned about that. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but the point and focus of this is realize this is not just a political issue, this is an issue that threatens all of Christianity. And it threatens the belief in a a sovereign God. It threatens the belief of unity and forgiveness. It threatens the word of God itself. And the call to follow a standard of morality. So may we be aware. So we acknowledge that oppression is wrong and that where people are oppressed, it should stop. We condemn racism, misogyny, exploitation of children, abortion of children. We believe this world is broken because of sin and that every person is responsible for their sinful actions. We cling to the word of God to find truth about who God is and man and how he can be redeemed. We believe in a sovereign God that has the right to instruct his creation on how to live and we find the standards that have been given to us by this sovereign God as unchanging and beautiful. And we are created by the Lord for the purpose of knowing him Worshiping him and serving him. And so let's stick to what we believe and what we know. And don't let anybody make you feel foolish for being a Christian and believing it. They're they're the ones that are being deceived. And it breaks my heart because after it's all said and done and all the energy and all the fight is over, they're not going to be saved. They're not going to be made whole. They're just going to be more bitter and more angry. And they themselves may become an oppressor group, perpetuating the very thing that they hate. And you can just see how the enemy has twisted this all about. And we've got to stand. We've got to shine. We've got to walk with love and grace and mercy and truth and kindness. And we need to speak up. And we need to point people to Jesus. And I'm just going to ask the worship team, go ahead and stay there. I'm going to close in prayer. I went over a little bit. Let's go ahead and just close in prayer here. Father, we come to you and we thank you that you have created us in your image. And the possibility of knowing you and walking with you, Lord, it excites our heart. And serving you and having you to rule and reign over our life, Lord, it is a beautiful thing. It's exactly what we want. We rejoice that you are one that has a plan for our life. And Lord, we know that you are good in all of your ways. But we want to pray that, Lord, you would help us to be a light and a witness in this generation. And that you will save this generation. Lord, we do pray for those divine appointments that we can begin to interact with people and talk with people. That the view that is seeming to be so common about who the church is and what a Christian is and even, therefore, who you are. Lord, we get a chance to speak up and just show the beauty and the love that exists within you, but also within your church. So Lord, we, we surrender to you. And we ask for those that have been called into and tricked into these lies, Lord, we pray that, we pray that you would save them. Lord, I think of those that have stepped into, check off another box, and everybody's applauded and celebrated, and yet they're filling the hollowness and the emptiness and the brokenness in the midst of the party being thrown for them, how do they speak up, Lord? How do they say anything? How do they raise their hand when everybody's saying you're the person, you're the one that really has a chance to speak? Lord, I'll help them and deliver them, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.